All right, well, it's time to start another Wednesday night Bible class at North of Our Church Christ. I want to encourage everybody to uh, stick with the study. First Corinthians has some very difficult chapters. Last week was a difficult chapter. Uh, this one's not so bad, but the next couple of weeks are um, definitely some challenging material, material that we don't uh, typically talk about every Sunday, um, but it's still scripture, and so we're going to study it. Um, before we start class tonight, let's go ahead and say a prayer real quick together. Father God, we come before you, Lord. We're grateful for this time we could be together and, and um, open up your word and just study it with one another and share our ideas and our interpretations. And Father, we might not know all the answers, Lord, but we know you have all the answers, and we just pray that you bless our conversation tonight. Uh, that you keep our, our discussion in context with your word. Father, that, uh, that we can learn from each other tonight. Father, I just pray that uh, if there's something that needs to be said tonight, Lord, that you don't allow any of us to get in the way of that. Father, and I just pray that we have the courage to share what we're thinking, understanding that not everything that we say is going to be right or wrong. Father, what we're just trying to learn from each other. Figure it out together. God, we're thankful for your love. We're thankful for your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6. My clicker might not work. It's on. I've got no signal or something going on here, boys. That one's working. Yeah. It's on. It says it's got full battery. Like we just lost everything. Yeah. <laughs> I'm about to break out my phone. All right. First Corinthians chapter six, starting in verse one, says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So, starting off in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we've got an issue, right? Paul is showing the church in Corinth the issues that it's having over and over and over. We started with factious and, and divisions, and we've gotten into... Um, some extreme sin in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And here we are now. And we've got brother versus brother in a lawsuit for all the public to see. Is anybody familiar with where court was for the Greeks? 
Where was the courthouse for the Greeks? This is an important part of the conversation for tonight. Where was the courthouse for the Greeks? Does anybody know? Say that again. Center of town. Yeah, yeah, center of town. It was in the marketplace, right? So this is like going to settle your differences with your brother or sister in Christ at the mall for all to see. I want to point that out. Second, what do you think this means? Verse 2 and verse 3, I think, are very exciting, but they're also very, um, very confusing verses in the Bible. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And then verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? What do you think that means? What could that possibly mean? Go ahead, Sue. Christians have God's word. They have knowledge of God's word and what God expects and God wants. So that's what's going to judge the world. Okay. Is what God wants. And we have the knowledge of that because we have chosen to, to listen. Okay. Anybody else want to take a stab at that? Do you realize the gravity of the scripture. So I agree with you, Sue, that it's a connection to God that this is talking about. And I think he's going to come full circle like Paul always does because in his he argues circularly, okay? So he starts with a point and he goes a roundabout way to get back to that point, which is what you're going to see tonight. Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But I do think that it's saying something very important here. The first is that we will judge the world. Okay? I think there's a connection to us in Jesus Christ. Paul's going to say later on that not only are we temples of God and we house the Holy Spirit, but that we're actually the body of Christ, right? So I think there's a connection to Christ, and Christ will be the judge, right? God, God will judge the world, and we are connected to that. Um, but also angels. What angels will be judged? Is there a judgment day coming for angels? Or in darkness now, according to Peter and Jude, that are waiting for the judgment. Yeah. So there will be angels that will be judged. What angels is that? Is that like Michael? Is that Gabriel? Is it the angel of the Lord? Yeah, it's the fallen, right? It's the fallen angels. They will be judged. And the scripture is here. At least Paul is saying, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> At least Paul is saying, whoa, it's going to get me again. Excuse me. That we will judge the world and we will judge these angels. I think that says something about the character of who we are, who God is making us to be. Okay? And he's going to use this logic in the next couple of verses to say exactly why, if we have trivial issues between brother and sister in Christ, or brother to brother, sister to sister, why we don't need to get the law, if you will, the courts, 
involved, okay? So let's get through that, and then we can revisit that a little bit more. But I want you to be thinking about that. He starts out by making the argument, we will judge the world, we will judge angels. We will judge the world, we will judge angels. So verse 4 says, so if you have such cases, remember, he's talking about trivial cases, right? Let me make sure you see that down here at the bottom, right before you get to verse 3. He says, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? I want to point that out real quick before we move on, right? If you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? He's saying, why would you go outside the church? Why would you go outside the source to resolve matters that could be resolved within the church? He says, I say this to your shame. He's talking to the people who are suing each other or, or um, going to, um, to, to handle these these cases, he talks about fraud and being cheated later on. Um, and that's what he says. He says, I say this to your shame. This is what you're doing. This is what you should be doing, right? They're providing a negative look for the church at a place that everybody goes. We're supposed to set a higher standard, and instead we're making ourselves look bad because we're arguing amongst ourselves as if we can't solve our own problems over trivial matters. Mike, you want to say something? We should handle differences between brethren. Go ahead. Uh, you go and you, you meet with that brethren, and if you can work it out between the two of you, great. You've done great. If you can't, you take a brother with you. Yep. And if you can work it out then, great. And if that doesn't go, you take those necessary to convince the brother. And if that doesn't work, just let it go. Yeah. Yeah. This is something that um, we actually brought up uh, last week for 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that exact, that exact comment, because 1 Corinthians chapter 5 talks about, Paul says, look, I tell you not to yoke with people who are of this sin or this sin. He says, but understand this, we're not to judge the people outside the church. We're only to judge the people inside the church. Why? Because they have not, people outside the church have not agreed to live for Christ. They have not agreed to give themselves a new standard, right? They have not agreed to being subject to God. So we don't judge those outside the church. We also talked about the difference between judgment, right, and accountability. There's a huge difference between casting judgment on someone, condemning someone to hell for their actions, and holding each other accountable through the word of God. Similar to actually what Sue was hinting to earlier, okay? So it says, can it be that there is no one among you, verse 5, there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers. Now don't forget, we already discussed that Paul, he's gotten a little snarky, right? He's gotten a little bit um, sarcastic at times. He's gotten a little bit um, edgy with the members of the church of Corinth through this letter. And this is another one of those moments, because if you remember in chapter 1, Specifically, he's calling out the fact that they think they're so wise. This, these people in Corinth, they think they're so wise. So when he says, can it be that there is none among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Well, in chapter 1, you thought you were so wise. But now all of a sudden, there's nobody wise enough to handle this? We've got to take this outside of the church and into the courts? to become a spectacle for all to see while they're shopping for their groceries and, and doing their business? Verse 6, 
but brothers go to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. See, that's what he's saying right there. It's not necessarily that trying to use the law to hold each other accountable is a bad thing. Okay, in fact, there's many of many other scriptures. Paul himself, the one who wrote this, makes sure that he expresses his rights under the law many times as a Roman citizen and, and, and in other ways. So he's not saying that there's never a time, right? He also says in uh, uh, Romans 13 to obey the laws of the land, and, and he talks about respecting our government and that God has placed our government above us. So he's not anti-authority. He's not anti-court. But he certainly doesn't like the idea that these, there's trivial matters going on in the church and they're bringing these trivial, trivial matters into the marketplace, in dispute, in the courts, for all to see. There's no doubt about that. Verse 7, to have lawsuit at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? This is where, this is where Mike was going, right, where, with, with the teachings of Jesus. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers, right? See, the Greeks were similar to us. They cared a whole lot about their rights. We as Americans, we care a whole lot about our rights, don't we? I do. So did the Greeks. Is he saying that there was uh, no such thing as a good judge in all of Greece? Is he saying there was no such thing as a good judge in all of Rome? Is he saying you can't trust anybody to rule fairly over you unless they're a Christian? Is that what Paul's saying? That's not what he's saying. But he is giving us a higher standard, isn't he? He says, wouldn't it be better, this is my own words, but if you're looking at verses 7 and 8, he says, wouldn't it be better just to concede this one, take the loss, Allow someone to cheat you, allow someone to defraud you, allow someone to get away with this trivial matter versus bringing shame on the whole church, in the marketplace, at the court, for all the unbelievers to use against all of the Christians. Isn't that what he's saying? I mean, you got to think about this. You know, Greece and Rome is still part of our culture today. But there's a lot about Greece and Rome that we don't talk about in school, that we don't talk about a lot of times even in church. There's a lot about their culture that we don't bring in. We, we admire their justice system. We admire their education system. They had good philosophers and and. They learned a lot about the stars and the way the world works, and, and there was a lot about education and things like that, that that were good things. I'm not saying they weren't good things. They are good things, and they are part of how we mimic in our culture. There's a lot about the Greeks and the Romans that's 
Not good. In fact, really bad. Terrible examples. And we're going to talk about that in a minute because he brings in some stuff here in a minute where the, the class takes a little bit of a turn and it gets a little bit tougher. But I want you to be thinking about that because that is also what he's saying. Right? There is a lot of way you can justify your actions based on the law of the land, but the law of the land doesn't always meet the standard of God. That's sort of the whole point of this whole thing. You're asking somebody who's going to enforce the law of the land to oversee your problems in the church, your trivial matters in the church, when they don't even hold themselves to the same standard that you are supposed to. Don't forget what we just talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If Paul is saying, we're not supposed to judge those outside of the church, why are those outside the church supposed to judge those inside the church? How about that? Anybody got anything before we go on? Because it's going to get, it's going to go different. Go ahead. I, go ahead, Sue. I think uh, that last part of verse 5, Mm -hmm. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle dispute between the brothers? Uh, I think that gives us a, a way of handling things. Absolutely. If we have an issue that we can't resolve, then we go to people who are spiritually wise yep. and get their guidance and wisdom to help settle the matter and in, if even if it's not settled you just remember that this is your brother that you love them and you forgive them and keep on going yeah i think that that's important to, i think that what you say is very important and i think again you add that to what mike said earlier where the first thing we do is we try to resolve it between ourselves right and if we can't get anywhere then we bring mediation and if we can't get anywhere with mediation, well, somebody's got to figure out how to resolve this and move on so that the church can heal and be better for it, not divide the church over it, right? So, and that's what he's saying. Even you do this not just to people outside the church, you're doing this to people inside the church. You're treating your own brothers and sisters wrongly. But at the same time, he speaks to the other person and he says, wouldn't it be rather just to suffer wrong than to bring this out and cause shame upon the whole church? Right? Don't forget, they're going against a culture that is not exactly thrilled with them, to say the least, right? I mean, this is roughly around the time of who? Nero. Nero's the emperor. He's, he loves the Christians. They're his favorite. Telling everybody you should be like the Christians. No, opposite. One of the greatest persecutors of <laughs> New Testament Christianity ever. Okay? All right, let's keep moving. Verse 9, or do you not know, and this is where I said, it's going to take a little turn here. I want to talk about all this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, 
nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see, he's talking to people that are Greek. He's talking to people who live in Corinth. He's talking to people who live in a culture where, to be honest with you, sexual immorality isn't just okay and permissible and expected and accepted, but it's something that actually is used in worship. It's used in worship. So when we talk about this, and we see this come up over and over and over, especially in Paul's writings when he's dealing with this specific culture and the cultures that have been heavily influenced by this specific culture, you can see why this is such a big deal. Idol worship. Adultery, if you own the person, it wasn't adultery in Greek culture. Right? And then this one. Uh, and, and this is just something. I'm going to bring it up real quick because I think it's important. The word here for homosexuality. I don't know if you've ever heard the argument that uh, the only word for homosexuality is actual sexual immorality. That word in Greek is porneia. Sound like any other word you're familiar with? This is not that word. This is the Greek word for, in fact, there's two Greek words that are used here. The first one is the use of the word means a male prostitute. And the second word in the Greek of this specific verse is the word that's used for sodomy. So this is not an inclusive thing. This is not something where um, the New Testament writers uh, wrote something and through interpretation and culture over the years, it's changed into something else where all of a sudden we specified sexual immorality. I want to be really clear about that. That's a big argument that is being used by the world right now that homosexuality is actually never truly addressed in ancient scriptures because in the actual verbiage of the words in Greek, it doesn't differentiate. It does. Right here is one of the most poignant verses in all of scripture where it uses the exact words. Why am I saying that? Because of the culture that they live in. Have you ever studied the Roman emperors? Did you know, would it surprise you if I told you that 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors were either gay or bisexual? Nero, the one that we were talking about earlier, that was one of the biggest persecutors of the church, do you realize that he married a little boy? Go look it up. Later on after that, he married another man and called himself that man's wife. This is the culture they lived in. This is the part of the culture we don't talk about. 
gets a little too real. But this is the reality that Paul deals with. Go look it up. It's not hard to find the truth. We live in a culture right now where they want to tell you that that's just me being conservative, that's just my politics, that's just hate speech, that's just whatever. I don't care where you lean politically. I just care about what the word says. And this is why he says, he names all these things, and these are things, you know, that aren't, aren't fun to talk about. They're temptations that we all deal with in our own ways. Some are stronger temptations for some, some are stronger temptations for others, right? But the truth is, in one way or another, somewhere on that list, and we can make the list a lot bigger than that because Paul lists off a whole bunch of specific sins and lifestyles of sin in a lot of different places in the Bible. And one way or another, all of us were one of those or some of those or used to be something like that. The difference between us and the world is not that we are more righteous, it's that we serve a more righteous God. The difference between us and the world is that we were washed by the blood of Christ. Since you've been washed by the blood of Christ, since you've been baptized, have you been perfect? Nope, everyone in here is still sinned. The difference is you've been washed. And you are constantly, 1 John, or 1 John chapter 1, you are constantly being washed by the blood of Christ. It doesn't stop. It's not a one-time dip through baptism and all of a sudden the flood's over. No, it's like standing under a hose and being constantly covered. Constantly covered. That's what it means to be washed in the blood of Christ. You were sanctified. What does sanctified mean? It means you became the temple of God. Not because of your amazingness, because of God's grace and his mercy and his love. He made you holy despite your unholiness. That's why you're sanctified. Because despite who we are and despite who we were before we became Christians, God sanctified us and made us his temple, right? He destroyed it and rebuilt it in three days. He just didn't rebuild it physically and he didn't destroy it physically. He took God's spirit out of it and put it in us. And then we're justified. What's it mean to be justified? It means that even though you sin, your sin doesn't stick to you. God has separated your sin from you as far as the east is from the west, as far as the depths of the ocean, to be putting it at the bottom of the ocean versus you being on top of the ocean. Go ahead, William. You know, I kind of said I wouldn't say anything. I just sit here and listen. But you know, it's hard for me to do. <laughs> uh, the problem, and I'm not going back then, I'm going today, we have, as the church, accepted a watered-down definition of sin. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is uh, certain things, we, we get this attitude, say, shh, shh, don't say anything. 
Just let it go. Don't, don't worry. You know, if, if we don't say anything about sins that God has identified, all we're going to produce is a lukewarm Christian. And, and the problem is, this, the results of it is going to be our kids, our friends, people we're associated with, will not see the difference yeah. between how we live and how the world lives. Yeah. And I can't stand that because God said there's a difference. Yeah, we're holy, we're set apart, right? God, God says that we, we need to live that life that, that makes, us, makes us special. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. Mm-hmm. We are God on purpose. Mm-hmm. How could you be set aside if you accept anything? I can't stand it. I can't do it. And uh, you know, somebody got to say something. Yeah. Jesus Christ is the answer. That's true. Afraid that hey, well maybe they won't come in the church. Maybe maybe the people we we came so as such as you we were there. Mm-hmm. So the key to me is we share Jesus Christ with people. We love we share our love for them, and uh, we kind of we kind of uh, let let God. Help them get there. Mm-hmm. I remember one time at the food pantry, and uh, I was talking to a guy, and a guy, he had a lot of tattoos. It didn't bother me. And he had, his ears was, was cut. It didn't bother me because I seen somebody there who, just like I was, need to know Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so we need, to, we, need to, we need to stop staring at people and tell them, what could save their life? What God promises for them? And I'll stop right there because I can keep on going. <laughs> you keep going if you want. Three, three, two, one. <laughs> you can. And that's absolutely right. You know, it, and I think it's important to understand that he says, were. Such were some of you, right? There is a standard that we are trying to live up to. That doesn't, we don't ever want to nullify God's grace. We don't ever want to nullify God's love. We don't ever want to nullify God's mercy. We don't ever want to nullify God's forgiveness, right? We don't want to nullify those things. We also don't want to make excuses for sin. We certainly don't want to get so comfortable with sin in the culture of the world that we don't look any different than sin in the, than sinners in the culture of the world. That doesn't mean we're not all sinners. But I certainly hope, if you've been in church for 10, 15, 20 years, that you look back at who you were 10, 15, 20 years ago, and you don't see the same person. Because Jesus has been changing you. At your own pace, 
Okay, God works with all of us at our own paces based on what we can handle. He doesn't put us all into a specific mold that we all have to attain a certain standard of righteousness to get into heaven, attend church a certain amount of time to get into heaven, right? We don't want to nullify God's grace. We don't want to nullify his mercy. But at the same time, we have to heed the word of God. And whether that's friendly to the world or not, we got to live by the word of God. And we have to speak the truth. And this is the reality of the world that we live in. Don't forget, I talk about Greece, and I talk about Rome, and I want you to understand that our culture still glorifies that culture. And the things that you see creeping into our culture, they're not creeping in. These are things that have been going on for centuries and centuries and centuries, and they've been glorified by major civilizations for a long time. It's not new to our country. But I do think it's interesting how we praise them for certain things but don't tell the whole story. I don't want to be like the Greeks and the Romans. I want to be American. If you really want to know the truth, and, and more importantly than American, I want to be a follower of Christ and of the kingdom of God. Verse 12. All things are lawful, lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. You know, this has been a scripture I've heard people use to justify all kinds of choices in their life. Right? Um, I, want you, I want you to read it again. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Other interpretations would say controlled by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. You know, I believe he's talking about an argument that people are making in the culture of his time for sex. I think chapter 6, that's a big part of what's going on here. And I think one of the things that he's saying in this part is it's natural. You see it in all of nature. You see it in all kinds of different ways in nature. It's natural, right? He says... Your body, which can reproduce, that's not just what it's made for. It's actually made for the Lord, right? <clears throat> Here's another one. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her, right? Because the scriptures say, for as written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? I want to go back to where we started. And I want you to see this connection 
from the beginning where it says we will judge the world and we will judge angels and see the connection, the powerful connection that when you become a member of the church, when you are baptized into the blood of Christ, when you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that you have a connection to Jesus. You are his body. You are connected. You are part of him now. And it even goes further, and it says, just like when man and woman get married and they become one flesh, right, as they, the two become one, that's the scripture he's using. It also says that when you are joined with God, you become one spirit. Why does he use this word over and over again? Because he's going to use it and we're going to read it. It's, why does he keep talking about prostitutes? That's right. Temple <laughs> prostitutes. What were temple prostitutes, Mike? <laughs> Not in detail. What were they really, though? They were male and female who... Uh part of the worship of Diana and on the days off when there wasn't a worship service at the temple of Diana mm -hmm. they would filter down into the town and knock on doors and try to sell themselves I guess would be a yeah, yeah you pay your offering or so to speak and you get some time that's it and they were priests they worked at the temples this is what they did, right? Another, another ceremony. I mean, look, I know this isn't the most comfortable thing. I know this is in some ways embarrassing, but it's reality, and you have to talk about it. If you're really going to understand the scriptures, you've got to talk about it, okay? But here's another reality. Any of, the, any of the pagan religions that have fertility gods, which the Greeks and the Romans did, and many of the other major civilizations had fertility gods, Right? The father God, the mother God. Typically the mother God was the fertility God, and that's the one you would pray to and you'd make offering to when you wanted to have a baby. This was common practice in the ancient civilizations, guys. And it got worse than that. Because there were also times of festival where everybody would go to a certain place and it would be a free-for-all. I'm just being honest. Guess what? I'm going to share something else that's even more disgusting than that. Because we have to be honest. There wasn't age limits. You were groomed from a child to deal with this type of culture. You were groomed from a child because you went to the festivals and you were part of the experience despite your age. So when a young boy starts to become... Um, trained by a Roman soldier and that Roman soldier starts to have relations with that young boy, it's not even thought of as a weird thing because he's already been groomed for that in these festivals, in these holidays, in these rituals. It's reality. So some of the stuff that we're looking at now that is slowly starting to creep into our culture, it's not new. We separated ourselves from it for a while. And here it comes again. Okay? And I want you guys to see this. He's saying, look, when you unite yourself with anybody in a sexual way, your flesh has become one flesh. There is something that you leave with them and they leave with you. You become one. 
In the same way, you have been united with God in the spirit. So when you unite and go back to these former ways that these people used to do, even for worship, now you got something different going on. why it ends like this. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. Leave it behind. Make it your past. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. I want you to see this distinction. Because to me, sexual temptation is the biggest temptation that everybody in life has had to deal with at one point or another in their life. But there's not a young person in the room that doesn't experience in one way or another sexual temptation and the temptation to be sexually immoral. In fact, it is glamorized in our society and it is glamorized in our culture. And if we reach a certain age and we are still a virgin, we're actually looked down upon. We are actually shamed for that. Like, you haven't done that yet? Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I'm going to say something else. Probably going to get me in trouble. But a lot of people would think this is their right. The right to choose who they want to be, who they want to be with, how often they want to be with them. There's a famous saying going around right now, and it gets used for all kinds of different purposes, really whatever purpose meets the mold. Now, I'm going to say this again. I don't care your political affiliation. My job is not politics. Okay, but this scripture, you know what this scripture makes really clear for the Christian? It's not my body, my choice. It's I died to myself and gave that right, that choice to God. I have died to myself. I have given up. There are certain rights, certain freedoms that our world, that our culture will grant us that we give up when we follow Christ. Because they don't meet the standard of God. So I want you to see that. This was an intense class. Chapter 7 doesn't get much lighter. Just going to warn you. Is there anything anybody wants to Add to the conversation any question anybody wants to ask. Anything is fair game. If there's something you want to say, now is the time to say it. No? Remember that your body is the temple of God. For those of us who have been baptized in the Christ, we've been washed in the blood of Christ. We've been sanctified, we've been justified. 
we've been set aside, set apart to be holy. And the word of God changes people, but let me tell you something, your actions, your example, that holy example, that righteous example has a lot of power in itself. And one of the things that I have seen in my life as I've grown up in our culture is a church in general as a whole that is slowly looking more and more like the culture of the world and less and less set apart by God because we want the gospel to be easy But dying to yourself is not easy. And dying to yourself is not just a simple act of being baptized. Dying to yourself is something that you do every single day. Right? What was the cross? It was an instrument of death. What did Jesus say? If you want to follow me, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to pick up that instrument of death every single day and follow me. That's what you're supposed to do. Dying to yourself is not something you do one time. It's something you do every day. And just like we talked on Sunday night in Ephesians 6, there's parts of scriptures in Ephesians 6 that's very difficult for me. But the reality is I have to trust God that he knows best. Because his ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are so much greater than my thoughts will ever be. Because what I see is a small little glimpse of a greater picture when he can see the whole thing. Nothing else? Don't say I never got you out of class early. Or maybe we're just on time. Thank you guys for coming to class tonight. And I pray that uh, God was glorified through our discussion.